Well, as you can see, today we are beginning a brand new sermon series that we're calling Love Where You Live. Do you love where you live? I think it's an important question for us to ask, and as I ask that question of you, your mind probably immediately goes to, well, do I, am I happy with the, the place, the house, the location where I live? That's kind of where we go when I say, love where, do you love where you live? But that's really not all that we are talking about in this. Actually, studies show that the majority of people do love where they live. They're happy with the place that they live. It's a small majority, though, and actually the number, according to the surveys, is going down. And the reason that it's going down is because there's an increasing tension and even animosity that is existing in neighborhoods that is growing more and more and more. That might be because the neighbor is too loud. It might be because their yard is in a horrible condition. It might be because they have tacky decorations. It could be any of a number of reasons, but it's actually on the decline. It's just, just a little bit of a majority, but it's going down. And I certainly hope that you don't have to deal with those sorts of issues in your neighborhood, and I certainly hope that you love where you live. That's important, but it's really not what this series is all about. We're not so much thinking about do we, do we love the place, the location that our house is, but rather do we love in the sense of how are we responding to the people who are around us, not the streets that are around us. That's what this is all about. That's what we're thinking about when we talk about what it means to love where you live. Now, it seems appropriate that we would kick off this series by talking about neighbors because we live in neighborhoods, so that seems appropriate to us. So, I'm, I'm calling this first message, Like a Good Neighbor. Now, just to make sure we're all clear on the same page, this is not a sermon about insurance. This is not, assurance, uh, or the, this is not a sermon about Jake from State Farm. It's not that at all. This is a sermon about loving where you live and liking the place that you are, like a good neighbor. It does have to do with what it means to be a good neighbor. Now, you know what it means to be a good neighbor or be a bad neighbor. You might have one that you consider good or bad. My dad is a great neighbor because not only does he keep his yard up, he also mows the yard of two of his neighbors every week, and he shovels their driveways in the winter. He's a, he's a great neighbor, better than a guy who I read about this week who was pretty upset with his neighbor, and so what he did is he went over when the neighbor was gone, and he unhooked his garden hose from the spigot, and he poured out the, you know, dumped out the water that was left in the hose and replaced it with Roundup. So that as soon as that neighbor sprayed out of his hose, it killed everything that he sprayed it on, at least at the start. That's not a good neighbor. And somebody's taking notes. It's like, great idea. No, 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 no. That is not a good neighbor. Or it's also not a good neighbor, the guy who, who was getting a bit tired of his neighbor complaining about his fence, and it was kind of an eyesore. And so he kept telling him that he's got to paint his fence. So imagine the surprise when he came home one day and saw this. Look, Bob, I've painted my fence. I don't think that's what Bob had in mind. This is not a good neighbor. Or we had, our family, we had a good neighbor who what would happen with them is that they had a key to our house and whenever we would go away on vacation, 
when we would go on a trip, when we would come home, they would have fresh milk and fresh bread there for us when we arrived. That's a good neighbor. That's a good neighbor. So whenever we were running out of milk, we just called them up and told them we were going on a trip. It worked great. They thought we were always gone, but, uh, but it worked out pretty well for us, to say the least. Well, neighborhoods are filled with all sorts of people, and not all are good neighbors, to say the least. You know this. Surveys show that on most streets, there's at least one person or one family that everybody else on the street does not like. Think about your neighborhood. And if you can't think who that person is, it's probably you. That's exactly right. It's probably you. All right. Actually, I'm going to go on the assumption that none of you are that person or your family is not that family. But how do you get along in your neighborhood? What is your relationship like with the people who are around you and around your home? If you're like most people, you probably have friendly but somewhat detached relationships with the people who are around you in your neighborhood. Sure, you're going to wave, you're going to say hello when you walk past them. But it probably doesn't go a whole lot deeper with that, with the vast majority of people who are around you, and maybe everybody who is around you. For many people, they say they can only name, on average, one or two people, their, front, their first names in their neighborhood. This is kind of the, the circumstance that surrounds us. Why is that? I think it's important for us to think about that, and we're going to. What is it that keeps us from from developing relationships that go deeper when it comes to our neighborhood? Where's Where's that reluctance come from? And more importantly, how do we get past it? How do we get past it? As it turns out, we're not the first people to be resistant when it comes to loving where we live in or from that point of view or from that standpoint. Today we're going to consider some others who were very much in the same boat, and we're going to take a look how they figured out where they were and how they might best move forward. And as we look at what we see in them, it's going to assist us. Now the people that we're going to look at here today, they get their information through a story. It's a story that Jesus told to some people who were standing around and sitting around, specifically directed at one guy, and very appropriate to our topic today, this one guy comes up to Jesus, and he asks a question that sort of centers all of what Jesus is going to say. And here's the question that he asks. He says, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? We find this question in one of the histories that's written about Jesus, written by a guy we refer to as Luke or Dr. Luke, and it's written and contained in what we call the Gospel of Luke, and I'd invite you to go ahead and open up to this passage. We're going to be going through several verses, primarily just being in this section, and so it would be helpful for you to have it open before you. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37 are what we're going to be looking at. There's also an outline that's available for you there. All of that is also available through our app on version. You can find that and the outline and all the rest. And while you're turning there, welcome everybody. So glad to be with you, to be back with you after having been gone uh, recently at a family wedding and uh, enjoying some time with family and just good to be back. Welcome in the live auditorium and the classic venue. 
on our Moon campus if, or on our online campus as well. We're just uh, glad to have this opportunity. But get to this passage, and, and we're going to make our way along through it. In this passage, we're going to see Jesus answer this question, and who is my neighbor? He's going to answer this, and in doing so, give some vital steps to help us to understand where this disconnect comes from and how ultimately that we might get past it. So let's jump into this, all right? So the first of those essential steps to live like a good neighbor is to face your reluctance. It's to face your reluctance. We've all got it on some level. It's important that we might acknowledge that. Let's take a look at how Luke records this encounter for us. Verse 25, take a look. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the fact that it says here that this man is testing Jesus suggests that there is some sort of animosity that he has toward Jesus. He's trying to catch him in perhaps some lack of knowledge or some poor understanding. We're told that this guy's an expert in the law, which means he understands or he knows what the Scriptures have to say. He's already formed some conclusions about what the right interpretation of those words would be. He wants to see if Jesus gets it right. He wants to see if Jesus has the right answer, at least according to how he believes it ought to be interpreted. Now, Jesus knows the animosity that's in this guy's heart. He knows he's being tested, and so Jesus isn't going to fall into that trap. He's too smart for that. So he turns it back on the other guy. He says, well, what do you think? What do you think? And the guy who is proud of himself and all of his knowledge, he can't help but jump into this, so he does. Verse 26 says, what's written in the law? He replied, this is Jesus, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, the expert in the law answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That's certainly a very biblical answer. It's right in that sense. He's quoting right out of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. We call it the great commandment. It's a very important verse that sums up sort of the whole law. So for someone who is focused on keeping the law, as this expert in the law is, it's, it's a good answer. And he thinks that that is a great answer. And it's a right answer from that standpoint. But what he is looking for is a way that he might justify himself. He's looking for a checklist. I've done what I should do. I know what I should know. I understand, or I, I am familiar with the verses I'm familiar with, thinking that this is what justifies me, as though that were able to do that. But that's not what justifies a person before God. So, so Jesus realizes he's just kind of stumbling himself into a trap, and so he, he lets him keep going, plays along for the moment. Verse 28 says, you've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. He's playing into the guy's own sort of belief system. And it's true, if you do that, you will live. You'll have eternal life if you can do it perfectly, which he knew he couldn't do. He's sort of setting the trap that much further. Verse 29, he goes on. But this guy, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Now, he's not afraid to ask that question because he feels completely justified in the way that he's engaging with anybody who might possibly be considered to be his neighbor thinks it's a safe question. He's not interested, though, in his neighbor. He's interested in his own self-righteousness and proving himself right before Jesus. It's all self-serving, to be sure. He doesn't see himself as one who even needs to engage with his neighbors because he's already gotten in with God. He already knows all of these things. He already knows the law, and so he thinks, there's, there's nothing else that I have to 
do. He feels perfectly justified in keeping his distance from those other people that he might consider to be unsavory or repulsive or just not worth his time. And very much in the culture of that time, there were people that others would look on and it's like, yeah, I don't need to spend time with you. You're, you're horrible. I, I know. And he feels completely justified in that sort of response. Now, what about us? It's possible that we would feel a reluctance toward our neighbors or toward others that is very much in keeping with the attitude and the mindset of this person here. But I doubt that that's where most of you are. I doubt that most of you look on your neighbors and say, well, I don't have to spend time with them or they're below me or anything of that nature. I doubt that's what you, how you come to the circumstance, but it still means, it doesn't mean that we can stop our own evaluation of our own reluctance. We still need to get to the bottom of what is it that keeps us from going across the street or inviting somebody over or investing more deeply in the life of somebody else. Because my guess is that all of us would have to raise our hands to the question, do you have a reluctance toward approaching the people who live around you, who are in your life, in your world? Most all of us have our hands, I think all of us have our hands up in that regard. We need to ask ourselves, what is that about? We need to face the reluctance. Maybe your reluctance has to do with some sort of tension that has arisen between you and another person, maybe based on something that has happened between you. And as a result, you don't feel very friendly toward them, and they don't feel very friendly toward you, and so you just sort of keep your distance from one another. It might be because your values or lifestyle seems to be so different than that other person, and so you just feel uncomfortable around them because you're so different. And so you've both just sort of learned that we're just going to keep our distance, and that's just the way that it's going to be. Or it might be that you're just not sure how you could start a conversation with them, even if you want to, or let alone start a relationship with them. One of the things I sometimes think that stalls me or that makes me reluctant, it's like, well, I, yeah, I, I know I should go to them, but I think they're going to consider it just to be a bother for me to engage with them. And I don't want to just be a bother to people. And so that's something that can slow me down. Or maybe you're shy. Or maybe you just don't think you need to. Like it's not all that important. Think about a neighbor or two who live near you. Ask yourself, why? Why am I reluctant? Think about, picture them in your mind. Maybe they're right next door. Maybe they're across the street. But you haven't approached them. You really don't know them other than on the most superficial level. What's making you reluctant? Ask yourself that question. It's very important that we would figure that out. Because until we figure it out, the distance is going to remain. We'll never close that gap. But once we identify what it is, then we have some understanding of what's necessary for me to get over the hang-up that I've got. We need to face the reluctance. Now, for this expert in the law, he was reluctant because he didn't see any need to engage. But Jesus is going to shake up his whole world here with what he says going on. And his words are pretty pointed for us as well. I just want to prepare you for that. So the second vital step of living like a good neighbor is to embrace the shock, all right? To understand that Jesus is trying to sort of get us off status quo and move us 
forward. Embrace the shock. Many of Jesus' stories and lessons have a certain shock value, and such is the case here as this account goes on. We see it. To get the attention of this expert of the law and ours also, Jesus gives what has become one of the best-known parables that there is in the whole of the New Testament. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure that you've heard of it. It's just a common term even now that is in our culture. We know what a good Samaritan is. It's somebody who does a good deed for somebody else. Well, here's where it comes from. Let's go ahead and take a look at this. He begins this part of the story in verse 30, where Luke records, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. be very easy for Jesus' hearers, certainly the expert in the law, to picture what does it look like going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you've ever been there, you've ever taken the trip, you realize it's a dramatic change in topography. Jerusalem is up on the top of a mountain. Jericho is basically down at the bottom, about 3,200 foot distance to cover to go down. And because of it's, it's so steep, there's a lot of switchbacks, which means there's a lot of place for a robber to lay in wait for his victim to come. And that's what's happened here. And this guy has been left, the text tells us, or Jesus' story tells us, half dead, which is to give us the idea he's going to die unless somebody does something for him and does it in a hurry. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Oh, good, everybody listening to the story, good, this guy's going to get some help. Certainly a priest is going to help him out. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Huh. So much for help coming from the religious guy. But there's still hope because the next guy who comes by in Jesus' story is a Levite. He's not one of the same status as a priest, but he's also a religious servant. So everybody would have been like, oh, well, this guy's going to help him out, verse 32. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. As the people pictured the priest and the Levite going down from Jerusalem, Jesus doesn't just say he was going up from Jericho to Jerusalem. He says he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which I think is an important part of the story because the people who were listening to it would have understood that the priest and the Levite, where have they been? They've been in Jerusalem. What have they been doing? What priests and Levites do? They've been leading the worship. They've been assisting people with the sacrifices in the temple. They've been doing religious duty. They've been celebrating God. They've been celebrating the priority of God, the kindness and the love of God. And so what happens? These people who should have known better, all of a sudden, barely after they've fulfilled their duties, are now not living according to the things that they're proclaiming. And it's really easy for us to say, oh, shame on you. Has that ever happened to you? You ever finished reading the Bible or finished praying, and then all of a sudden the next thing you know you're in an environment where you're not applying the Scriptures at all to what's going on? What about after worship, if you're in person? You ever go home and have arguments in the car after worship? You ever argue about where you're going to go for lunch, you're going to go for dinner, or have bad attitudes on display in the car? I see your heads. I see the smiles. I see the elbows. I know that that happens. Happened in my family, too. It was always Carolyn's fault, but it happened. <laughs> Verse 33, all right? The, the priest and the Levite here don't leave any room for excuses, but we don't either. We're in the same boat. 
as they are. Oftentimes we like to picture ourselves as, as the good guys, but we can fall into this trap just as much. So, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. He said, and when I, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This is the part of the story that the expert in the law never saw coming, or any of the other listeners, for that matter. This is the part of the story that Jesus intentionally throws in for shock value. That's why it's there to get their attention, and to make an important point. To the Jewish mind of the day, Jesus could not have chosen a more jarring or unexpected hero for this story. And again, he does it very intentionally. Jesus knew that this expert in the law and those listening would have no trouble at all dismissing Samaritans as people that don't need to be treated neighborly. They're their enemies. They're considered to be evil. They should be shunned, not embraced. Not at all. And Jesus says, not so fast. Embrace the shock. He says, Samaritans are your neighbor too. That's interesting. It's sort of difficult for us to put ourselves in the minds of the Jews and the Samaritans, the Jews and the Samaritans of Jesus' day, because there were some things going on culturally that we really can't completely understand and jump into from our own American minds today, but the understanding of what Jesus is trying to do here, that should be brutally apparent to all of us. The, the shock should be able to be embraced by us. Jesus pointed to the most unlikely group, and he said, you know what? They're your neighbor. That same principle applies to us. Whatever the group, whoever the people are that you might look at and say, you know what, they're ones beyond my need to embrace, beyond my need to treat neighborly. Jesus says, no, 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 no. He says, embrace the shock. He says, they're your neighbors too. Whoever it is, whatever group it might happen to be, now, for you, it might be another ethnic group, kind of it is like between the Jews and the Samaritans here, or it might be another race or another culture, or someone with a different ideology, or someone that you just have trouble liking would be the people that you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to do that. Now, you might not bring it up to the surface quite that clearly and say, yeah, I don't need to, but somewhere inside, we've accepted the reluctance to go there for whatever the reason might happen to be, Jesus says there's no appropriate reason to do so. Now, living like a good neighbor doesn't mean that you have to endorse the lifestyle of that person or believe the same things that that person does and just engaging with them, just sharing a meal with them, just being, doing life together with them doesn't mean that you're embracing their value system. But what it does mean is that we have the responsibility to treat them with love and kindness and consideration and to assist them when they're in need. So the question is, how do you step into the life of somebody else? Well, let's take a look at some of these things that we have been talking about, and I think that it, it helps to put some out there as we just take a look at this 
story, okay? So the last step of living like a good neighbor is to take purposeful action. To take purposeful action. Let me just highlight a few actions of good neighbors that are evident here in this parable, okay? The first is to be merciful. To be merciful. After Jesus finishes his surprising story, he has a question for the expert in the law. He says in verse 36, look at it, it says, Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law knows there's only one answer to this, and it's inescapable, so he gives it. He says, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. That's a mouthful. We shouldn't just pass that by. The Samaritan man in this story could have thought of lots of reasons to pass by the dying man on the road. I mean, his own countrymen passed him by. The religious people passed him by. Why would it be his responsibility if it's not their responsibility? Would have been lots of reasons that he could have justified in action. But he doesn't even try to. Instead, he takes action. He gets involved. He shows mercy. And what's mercy? It's showing compassion in a circumstance to a person where it wouldn't otherwise be expected. That's how he's living here. As we consider showing mercy to the people that we encounter in the course of a day, we need to move the needle from being compelled by a circumstance to being compelled by a call. You see, we oftentimes find ourselves in a situation that if you can move me, if you can move me in my heart, then I might choose to engage. But if you don't, I don't really feel any responsibility in that regard, and so I'm going to keep my distance. And we're going to feel justified in keeping our distance if nobody is able to move me in my spirit to desire to go forward. Jesus is saying, no, that's not the measuring rod. That's not the standard. He says, be merciful. Be merciful. I can't just walk away feeling justified in my disconnection. That's not living neighborly. Living like a good neighbor means intentionally extending kindness and goodness and mercy wherever it's needed, wherever we have opportunity. That's the first thing, be merciful. Another key to living like a good neighbor is to be generous. To be generous. Look again at what the Samaritan does for this guy. After he bandages up his wounds, he got him on his donkey. He takes him to a place where he can get some assistance. He cares for him there in that place, and he offers money to the keeper of the inn, basically, the, the head of the B&B, and uh, says, here, this is for other needs that you have, and if it goes beyond this, I'll come back and I'll pay you even more. It says in the text that he gives two denarii to that purpose. A denarii was a day's wage. So in today's calculations, that would be several hundred dollars that he's giving to help this guy that he doesn't even know and is considered to be his enemy. We ready to do that? The point is that this is a very generous move. That's what neighbors do. They look for the opportunity to bring blessing on others people, other people's lives, and then they do it. Sometimes that is financial where somebody helps out a neighbor who is in need or buys them a gift. 
I know of people at Pathway who have, have bought tires for people who are in desperate need of tires, who have paid bills for people who couldn't pay it for themselves, or to finance the tuition of somebody who's in need. That's really cool. That's awesome. And it's biblical too. You can be generous with your finances in that regard to be neighborly. You can be generous with your time. A neighbor who needs something, needs assistance, is in a project. What a perfect way to jump in and be neighborly. It can come through time. It can come through kindness. And other ways that I know that you can be creative enough to figure out as well. I actually have a neighbor who has done that for me. And I'm pretty sure I've told you about him before. He's a guy, my neighbor, he got a new snowblower. And he always would love to come over and blow my driveway when he'd see me out there with my scoop, kind of one at a time, doing my thing. He'd come over and he would help me. And then it led to him doing it even if I wasn't out there. Or I'd run off to work and it would snow during the day and it would be clean by the time I got home. I said, you don't have to do that. Really, I can do it. I'm fine. He said, I want to do it for you. And he continues to do it to this day. It's really awesome. He says, I want to do it. So I say, okay. <laughs> yeah, sound, sound, sounds good. I mean, maybe his pastor is telling him he should be cleaning off the neighbor's driveway with his new snowblower. I would hate to steal his blessing, you know? Now I'm just hoping that he gets a new lawnmower because, because that's the season that we're in now. All right, the opportunities to be generous are, are limitless, but we need to make a shift in our thinking to the place where we get to defaulting to generosity. Defaulting to generosity. Instead of, on a rare occasion, if I feel moved, I might choose to step in in a little way. That's very different perspective than defaulting to generosity with the people who are around us. But that's what this is calling us to. If you look at this text, and speaking about people like us uh, who have the ability to, to help, Paul adds this in speaking to Timothy. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That would be a great theme verse for this whole series. Or for us being neighborly toward another person, or to think, what, it, what does it mean to be generous? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Why don't you say that with me, would you? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Maybe we will make that a, a memory verse for this, for this series as we make our way along. You're going to have opportunities this week to be generous towards somebody else. What are you going to do when that comes up? How are you going to respond? This is an opportunity for us to get to the place where ultimately we might have influence for the sake of the gospel, but it starts at a place well before that. And on this level, what we're talking about today, we're not even talking about going to that place. It might just develop that way if you choose to take this step, but there has to be a first step before you can ever get to that step. And that's what we want to call you to today, and this being merciful and being generous is such a biblical thing to do, and we can just let God take care of it from there, at least to the place where we're at today. Then there's one other step to take to live like a good neighbor, and that's to be open. 
to be open. The circumstances of this story make it clear that Jesus values that we would extend mercy and get generous with people who aren't like us, who live differently, who vote differently, who act differently from us. Could God be calling you to be a neighbor to that awkward guy at work who everybody else shuns and everybody else laughs at? Or to the strange guy across the street? Or to that woman with the alternative lifestyle? Could it be that God is asking us, inviting us into circumstances that feel a bit uncomfortable? And it's kind of a shock to think, I'm supposed to go there? I'm supposed to talk to her or him? And engage. Keep your eyes and your mind and your heart open, and God just might surprise you with a connection to your own Samaritan. So, what are we going to do with this? Well, there are going to be some things that we're going to unfold as we make our way through this series. But I want to give you a challenge right now as we get it started, because I want to give you to the end of the series to get it done. I hope you do it faster, but it doesn't matter. You've fully accomplished it if you get it done by the end. There are four more weeks in this series. We're going to end it on July 11th. And what what I want to ask you to do is that by July 11th, by the time that it's over, my challenge to you is to take a significant step of personal connection with a neighbor. Maybe someone just right across the street. Maybe someone that God puts on your heart for some other reason. But a significant step of personal connection, what does that mean? It doesn't mean just saying hi as you walk by their house. What I'd like to encourage you to do as a step of significant step of personal connection is to get into some connection with them that puts you in conversation for at least an hour. For at least an hour. A meal is the perfect opportunity for this. Invite them over for barbecue on the deck. Have them in. Whatever works with your level of comfort with COVID and all that stuff, but have them over. Invest in them in some way. See, the important thing isn't so much what you do, and I'm sure that you can come up with some very creative ideas. Have a picnic. The 4th of July happens in that time frame. You're very creative people. I know that you can come up with something. What's important is that we would have enough time with them that we would get to actually know them and them to actually know us. Because what happens so often is that we just live superficially with the people around us. We're very friendly. We say lots of hellos as we pass by. Maybe we even have had a little bit of a conversation that has taken you a step further, but you really don't know them. And until we get to really know somebody, there's no traction. And until there's traction, what we do is we just kind of keep bopping to the surface, and we have the superficial conversation. And then the next time around, we bop to the surface. I'm inviting us to get below the surface. And then the next time we engage, we engage below the surface that allows us to go deeper still. So many of us, our only relationships with neighbors is way at the top. Superficial relationships. Just ask yourself. Think about your neighborhood. Think about the people who are there. What's it look like? 
Answer that for yourself. The only way that you can love where you live is to engage with the people where you live. I know it might feel like a shock to the system to think about taking that step and engaging in that way. I know it's going to force you to face your reluctance that's kept you from doing so. But I'm convinced that if we're willing to step up and step out and be merciful and be generous and be open, that we're going to come to know the joy of living like a good neighbor. And here's the thing. I believe that's what you want. I believe that that resonates with you. And I believe that even though it might be a little bit intimidating, that the thought of a month from now, when we finish this up, that you actually would have taken the step with the people that you've been feeling guilty about not having taken the step with before, that it sort of resonates as a, that'll be good. I would feel so much better having taken that step. So why not? Pray about it, would you? We're going to have some other things we're going to do during this series, but pray about that as a place to start. And ask God, who are the people? You probably already know. Don't make it the people that you already know or that you've already had over to the deck, all right? You, know, you understand how, how this works. Would you be willing to do that? I pray so, because as that happens, relationships are going to be formed in such a way that you're going to experience things, pathways going to experience things. We're going to grow so much as a fellowship. I don't mean numerically. This is not about getting those people to pathway inside our door. It's not about that. It's about the nature of the relationship that you are able to have with them. Living neighborly as God God is calling us to do. I desire that we would experience the joy and the fullness and the blessing of living like a good neighbor. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the people that you've put around us in our lives. Some of them very close to our house. And we think of them as neighbors because they live in our neighborhood. And that's very appropriate. And Lord, may we, in, in our minds as we process Who would that person be? Who would that family be? Lord, thank you for the people who are there. Most of us are thinking right across the street, which is great. Sometimes you call us to be neighborly to somebody that we have encountered in some other environment. That's great too. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be honest enough and insightful enough to face our reluctance and the things that have been keeping us from others, whether that would be, as we've talked about, just a a shyness or or not wanting to be bothersome, or because maybe there's some sort of division that has sprung up between us for some reason. Lord, how great would it be to be able to settle that and move beyond it? Lord, this isn't just sort of a fun project. This is living who you've called us to live as. So Lord, I pray that you would give us that courage, that you would give us that boldness, and that together, as a congregation, we would take such a huge step 
toward our understanding of what it means to live neighborly. Lord, we love the community that we're in. We want to develop a deeper and more abiding love for it. Pathway, we want to be a part of our community in a way that impacts lives, that connects us to to people, and that leads us to a place where we live out your purposes for us. So take us there, we pray, in Jesus' name. Well, it sounds like a clear challenge has been thrown out to us this week. Who are we going to take time to invest in? Pray about who God would lead you to connect with and make a plan for how you're going to engage with them over the coming weeks. I'm excited to hear what ideas come from this and how our communities will be impacted by our living this call to love where we live. Thanks again for being with us today, and we'll see you next week.